on the road to smarter smart trailers. I'm Jim Park, and this is an HDT Talks Trucking Special Report on Smart Trailers. This episode is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a relationship-building event hosted by Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine. Visit heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn more. On this episode, we pull back the curtain on smart trailers, what they are, how they work, and where the technology will take us. My guest on this episode is Paul Menig. He's a technology and business consultant, and he currently runs a consulting firm called Business Accelerants. He also has a deep background in transportation technology, having worked for both Eaton and Daimler. Paul is taking a leading role in developing standards and promoting the development of smart trailers. He's also leading two new task forces at the ATA's Technology and Maintenance Council that will help develop some standards and structure so that this technology can advance as quickly as possible. If there's anybody out there who understands the potential for smart trailers, it's Paul Menig. Paul and I will be back right after this. Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange is a unique networking event where fleet managers and suppliers connect and collaborate. HDTX 2021 takes place in Scottsdale, Arizona. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we can't yet commit to a date, so visit heavydutytruckingexchange.com to check for updates and to learn more about the event. So, Paul Manning, welcome to HDT Talks Trucking. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing great, Jim. It's great to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining me because uh, just this past few weeks, I've been working on a story about smart trailers for the December issue of HDT, Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine. And really, after all that deep dive, my head's about to explode. (laughs) So I really wanted to get you on and do a podcast here to sort of try and get everything out on the table that I couldn't possibly fit into an 1,800-word story. I don't think we really need much of an introduction when it comes to smart trailers. I think most people know what they are and, uh, you know, what, you know, the benefits of, of the technology is. But what's possible, you know, looking out five to ten years on a truly connected trailer? Well, I like to remind people when I make any presentations or talks that we're not in the trailer business. Uh, I used to work at Daimler. We're not in the truck business. Uh, We are in the business of moving freight and people safely, reliably, efficiently from point A to point B. And that's the bigger mission that we're on. And so a smart trailer figures into that because we are all trying to move that freight from point A to point B. And we all know from all kinds of studies that are done that trucking represents something like 75% of the ways that we move things from point A to point B. Uh, An example this morning, I was talking, uh, listening to a innovation presentation by the chief information and engineering officer of UPS. And one of the things that he said that caught my attention was that if they can save one mile in the route of a driver by optimizing how they load the truck, load the trailer, Um, and optimize the route with their left turns for accident safety, being avoided and only right turns and other things. If they can save one mile per driver, then in a year's time, they save $60 million. Now, you you can do a lot of investment 
You know, you figure at least $6 million and get a 10 to 1 payback uh, if you can save $60 million. So that's the kind of thing that drives why we're talking about smart trailers. And and you just basically talked about a, let's say, a second grader smart trailer, not a high school smart trailer. Okay. So when you ask what is possible, um, I've learned that in the last 10 years, we no longer have a refrigerated trailer that is just at one temperature. Instead, we have trailers that have two, three, or more zones at different temperatures for the different products that are on them. So that they may be going to a grocery store and they have some frozen foods, they have some produce, and they have other things, all that have to be kept at different temperatures. Further, I've, I've learned that even in leasing trailers and things, uh, refrigerated trailers, you're talking about five to ten drop-offs per day. And people have a tendency to leave a door open. So you want to know if that door is open and what's happening to the temperature in that region of the trailer as you try to move things from point A to point B. Um, last March, just before uh, COVID-19, we had the work truck show. And we had several manufacturers of walk-in vans uh, that were there. And they're using different technologies that put a RFID kind of puck on the uh, back end of the truck so that as you get in and out, it interacts with something on your wrist to let you know what you've put in there, uh, that you've gone in and come back out. I'm running into situations with beverage delivery trucks, especially, uh, and others, where the driver is expected to close and lock the vehicle before they make a delivery. So even in a typical New York City where they're double and triply parked, uh, they can't leave the doors open as they move away uh, from the truck because somebody will come and steal it. While we're talking smart trailers, it also applies to last-mile delivery, which may be in a straight truck, or it could be in a pup trailer. So smart trailers really are more than trailers, a lot more than trailers. They are, the important thing is the freight that's on it. Yeah. And what we want to do, and we want to be able to track the freight. It wasn't um, but a year ago that we were expecting the Food and Drug Administration uh, was going to require that we be able to identify which row in the farm field the produce came from so that we could track for E. coli and uh, other problems that were happening in the food stream. But I expect that's going to come back to us again in the future, that we're going to need to have that level of tracking. So as it gets put into a wood crate in the um, field, it's then going to be tracked by that piece of produce is in that crate from that row so that we, when we have to do the contact tracing uh, to figure out where a salmonella breakout occurred, we'll be able to do it in the future. And how would that apply to the transporters? And would they be able to identify maybe a, a crate that was on a trailer placed beside uh, a crate with contaminated produce in it? Interesting question. Um, I would expect that, yes, uh, if you're talking, you know, we have a salmonella breakout in row five of cornfield three, uh, then you want to check to see if you have a similar problem in row seven of cornfield three as well in the future. It's mind-boggling what can be done. And I, I guess 
the challenge here is going to be corralling all of this technology and, and putting it into a format that uh, we as an industry, the trucking industry, can deal with. Yes. Um, that innovation conference I attended this morning, by the way, was a virtual one online. Uh, they also had some people from Johns Hopkins um, University who put together the website that we all go to to figure out how many cases there are in the world and in this particular state and this county even and things. And one of the slides that caught my attention that they put up was one that said, standards matter. They had to start in a very short period of time to collect data on mapping information, on medical data information, and reporting where there was no standard for some of it and there were some standards for other parts of it. And that is what enabled them to be able to pull that all together and have a common way of reporting. Uh, UPS said that they delivered to 220 countries plus territories. I thought there were only about 197 or 193 countries, so there's a lot more territories than I understood. But Johns Hopkins is trying to do the same thing with tracking information from all those places. It has to be reported, and the only way they can do that is by having some sort of standards or a lot of uh, pieces of software uh, called APIs that allow them to interface to one set of data and translate it to another. So, yeah, standards matter, and, and, and that's where some of the work I've been involved in uh, comes into play. One of the things that really boggled my mind when I was working on this uh, story for the magazine was how many players are in the game now and how many have, or it seems anyway, their own individual ways of doing things. They're your you know, uniqueness in the marketplace that we can do this and the kind of competitors can't. I don't know, you know all the wiring that goes on behind that technology to make it happen, but are, are we at risk of, um, I think your partner in crime, Charlie Wilmot, called it innovative dysfunction, where uh, all of this technology and all of the ability, because we're innovative, threatens to go running madly off in all directions and leave us with this giant hodgepodge of stuff we have to sort out? Or is now the time to try and standardize all this? So in short, now is the time to try to standardize all of this. Okay. And this isn't the first time we've run across this. If you do, if, if you do some research, neither you nor I are old enough really for this one, but did you know that red did not always mean stop on a traffic light? No, no. It didn't. There was not a standard for traffic lights, and somebody had to develop and subscribe to and agree to a standard for traffic lights. Uh, I learned this a few years ago when I was working with a company in Southern California that was practically around at the time the traffic lights started. So everything we do you know, ends up having to be standardized in order for there to be really high level of growth. People come up with experimental ways of doing things, but then it gets standardized so that more people can use it and it goes forward. Um, you're only looking, when you made that statement, I'd say, at North America and maybe only the United States. Well, I and, was, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, we deal with the North, the North American marketplace, but in the back of my mind always, and you reminded me of it a couple of times when we talked about that story, um, how much is going on in Europe right now that's basically already ahead of us, uh, but how many of our suppliers here in North America are European? So 
the, the obvious question, which I really didn't want to dig into for the story, there just wasn't enough place to put all that. Are we going to pull a lot of that European technology over here uh, because of the European presence in the manufacturing side and start dealing with it now finally after all these years? I, th- I believe so. Uh, when we look at the ELD versus the electronic tachograph rules, you know, that we have in the two countries, mm-hmm. when we look at some of the lighting uh, regulations on trucks, they're a little bit different in Europe. Uh, we have different safety systems, some that are required in Europe, some that are, are only uh, voluntary requirements here in the U.S. Those things, you know, still are going to be happening, but for growth— standardization even there on a global basis is what people prefer. I I think we're a much more global society today than we were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, Today, uh, we have Daimler with Freightliner uh, and multiple other brands around the world. We have Trayton now with VW and Scania and MAN uh, and Navistar. We have PACAR with Kenworth and Peterbilt and um, DAF uh, in, the, uh, in Europe. And then we have them all having some relationships with Asian manufacturers as well, some with Indian manufacturers. So we have all of the truck OEs interested in growing markets, having more standardization to be able to drive down costs of some parts of their vehicles so they can pay for the autonomous parts of the vehicle and electric parts of the vehicle in the future. What we don't have quite as much at this point in time is a global trailer manufacturer uh, organization. There's a few instances, and again, it's more outside the United States, but uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I grew up in Detroit, and I always called it Fruhoff. Uh, That's one brand that is connected globally uh, as a trailer manufacturer. I don't know so much about the others. Hyundai certainly is, uh, and they're the largest trailer manufacturer in the world. So there's going to be, I think, a push uh, similarly because whether you ship something from Europe or you ship it from China or you ship it from India, um, I and my wife still want to track it and where it is. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. So we tend to treat trailers historically here as just boxes on wheels, tools, uh, you know, to drag freight around in. Uh, we've only recently discovered the, the, you know, the joys of smart trailers and, and some of the things you can do with them. Uh, if we're going to move, you know, full on into what's going on overseas and in other parts of the world with the technology that they have, is the trailer itself ready for that? Do we have the electronics on board, the connectivity uh, the telematics capability to make all that happen, or it's going to require some substantial changes to trailers as we know them, won't it? It will require some changes to the trailers. Uh, earlier, you used the word uh, wires, and actually some of the sensors that we're talking about on the trailer with the systems that are available today are using wireless standards for communications. It could be Bluetooth, it could be another system called Zigbee, which uh, most of your uh, listeners probably don't know about, IEEE, IEEE. Uh, it's a standards organization, that uh, professional organization that put out the standard for Wi-Fi, 
put out the standard for our telephone systems and things like that uh, through the years. So not everything requires a wire, but that means it has a battery associated with it. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to have different power requirements. As we move to electric vehicles, there are going to be some things that will stay 12 volts on the trailer. There will some be some things that will move to perhaps 24 volts, as we have in, elsewhere in the world. Perhaps skip over that and go to 48 volts DC. And then for refrigeration, for uh, axles that can do regeneration, help with stopping the vehicle, for lift gates, we could be talking as much as uh, 720 volts. Uh, those are different connections than we have today and different than the way we wire a trailer today. Well, yeah, we have <laughs> the seven pin, poor old J560. It's been around for 60 some years. Uh, that's hopelessly outdated. Uh, how are we going to get around that? How are we going to get signals, data, information between the tractor and trailer without coming up with a brand new plug? Or is that the obvious thing to do? We're going to need a new plug, in my opinion. And, <laughs> okay. and, and, and that hurts to say, because I think you know, 20-plus uh, years ago, uh, we had these discussions as well. And I feel like I should have been wearing a flak jacket back then for all the bullet holes I took in my uh, chest for suggesting that we needed a second connector. Which, by the way, we do have, and everybody is delivering, and the usage of that second connector has increased over time. Um, and we also did a survey back in December of 2019 and reported on that information at TMC to show that there were as many as 50% of the trailers out there now having a second connector of some sort. It could be for a, a single connector for power for a lift gate. It could be for cameras. Uh, it could be for the lift gate uh, battery charging. It could be for the trailer refrigeration unit. It could be for tracking purposes. As we go forward, the 7-pin the is not enough. Europe already has two connectors, as they did 20 years ago. They've gone to defining another standard for that. And as I've worked with the, the Technology and Maintenance Council this last uh, 10 to 12 months on this future uh, next generation trailer, uh, we have seen that most of the globally produced ABS units and uh, braking units want to go down a path that is similar to what we have in Europe right now, which is a different connector that has more power capabilities and has more data capabilities. Great. Uh <laughs> How do you build all this technology and make it work for trailers that are 10 years old? Or, I mean, we've got, what, 6 million trailers on in the fleet right now? And even if you started replacing them today, it would take nearly 20 years to completely overhaul the fleet. Okay. Uh, I know yeah, we're... Six million, 6 million trailers. And um, if I go back 20 years, probably none of those trailers had trailer tracking on them had a GPS unit on them. None of them had a ABS unit on it, and none of them had a reefer with electronics in it. So 
a report was done uh, every couple of years, uh, and we, we've come up with about 1.5 million, 25% of the trailers have a tracking system on them today. And of course, those didn't come just on the new trailers. Those are put on by fleets across their fleet and done so in the aftermarket someplace. With the ABS, there was very few people who would have retrofitted an existing trailer to put ABS onto it. But when it comes to a reefer, uh, yes, people do, I believe, replace the reefer unit. They hold the trailers. A report I just looked at from the National Private Truck Council indicates that reefers are typically 10 years in length uh, for their operations. And I expect that you... Uh, can retrofit a diesel reefer with a electric diesel or with a diesel reefer with the telematics attached to it. So in our industry, there's always been some group of people who are willing to retrofit something onto an existing trailer. Mm-hmm. It comes down, as always in our industry, to what's the payback for the fleet. Yeah, I guess when the with the payback with some of this quote-unquote smart trailer technology, the the payback will come a lot faster than it would have been in the old days by simply adding ABS to a, an existing drive-in. Yes, absolutely. So we can Because expect- you could see the payback uh, almost every day that you are tracking those trailers and getting the information that you need. Uh, I think you and I have both talked about uh, doubles and triples and what can we do to increase the load capacity of a trailer. Uh, I just uh, looked at a uh, couple of applications where you can uh, have more than one floor inside the trailer so that you can pack two pallets where you could only pack one pallet before uh, kind of thing. So there are ways that we can improve a 53-foot trailer's load capacity by paying attention to how tall is the load on a pallet Can we fit more in as we make deliveries uh, and uh, take uh, loads on? What more can we do? And that's where the fleets can see an immediate payback. They don't have to uh, wait like they did with ABS and, and worry about it only occurring for a payback when there's an accident or an avoided accident. Uh, just as a reminder, we're talking with Paul Menick. He's got his own business going on the side called Business Accelerants. Uh, but we're talking to him today in the context of smart trailers and the work he's doing to uh, try and integrate some of that technology into our trailer fleet. Uh, we're going to be back with Paul in just a moment. So hang in there. We'll be right back. HDT Talks Trucking is brought to you by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a relationship-building event hosted by Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine. HDTX is loaded with topical discussions and learning opportunities with some of the most innovative people in the business. Managers of Class 7 and 8 fleets, apply now to be our guest at HDTX 2021 in Scottsdale, Arizona. To learn more and to apply, go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com. So we're back with Paul Menig of Business Accelerants and of Smart Trailer fame. You mentioned earlier uh, some changes, pretty significant ones, to the electrical systems on board the trucks, including going up to as uh, (laughs) 
three-digit voltage, 24, 48, pick a number where we're going to go with that, uh, different connectors, all that sort of thing. Can you give me your own sense of, of what that's going to do or what that's going to mean for fleets when it comes to specking and maintaining that equipment? Uh, I've spent a good deal of my career trying to understand uh, corrosion, for instance, and what it does to electrical, what water does, and how it can seep into wires and things. And as you said that, it occurred to me, okay, uh, two weeks ago I put up my Christmas lights. Okay, those are the cheapest connections that there are out there. So what did I do? I took a whole bunch of duct tape and I wrapped it around those connections to and try to avoid letting water get into the ones that were on the ground. Okay? The ones that were supposedly under a canopy or something, I let them go. But the first thing always with electrical wiring is make a good mechanical connection and then make sure you have a good electrical connection and don't let water get into it. That's I learned how to make a good mechanical connection a long time ago, and we still have that problem with wires are bouncing around and things like that, which is only going to fatigue the wires in some fashion. Buy the best connector that you can with the best sealing. Uh, it can still end up having motion uh, break that seal and, and let water get in, but you got to start with the best that you can do. It's worth it because every study I've ever seen in our industry says that electrical problems take three times as hard, much time to find as compared to a mechanical problem that's pretty obvious. I would believe that in a minute, yeah. <laughs> and there you are using electrical tape on your connection. <laughs> <laughs> and you're an engineer. You should know better. No, no. Electrical tape doesn't <laughs> doesn't work well enough. I use duct tape. <laughs> you know, it's always struck me as ironic that the weakest link in our systems now, regardless of whether you're talking engine, DPF, transmission, trailers, is the electrical connection. Uh, are we going down a crazy road here where we're going to get into situations where the, uh, the sensors, once again, are the thing that let us down, or can we overcome that, uh, that connection and corrosion issue? Well, one of, one of the things that the people working specifically on autonomous-type vehicles are looking at is something we've never been able to justify in our industry before, which is redundancy. Right. Uh, I remember when I first came into the trucking industry, it was uh, 1985, and I was at Eaton and had moved from working in industrial automation and before that in aerospace and came over into trucking. And when I was working on an F-18 aircraft uh, kind of application, I was worried about triple redundancy of all the controls on that plane. In case something went wrong, you know, what would we do? If two things went wrong, what would we do? Uh, we have some standards now because of the... Uh, 737, where they're not talking about having to look at as many as 10 different things having occurred simultaneously and what could go wrong with what's going on. So I had this, I had this thing that we had a 20,000 hours mean time between failure for the aircraft uh, systems, MTBF. I came over into trucking and I said, oh, they told me, well, you got a B10 of a million miles. Okay, what the heck is that? 
So I had to go into the library and do a little study to figure out what's a B10 of uh, a million or 500,000 miles at the time. And I was astounded to find out that that was the equivalent of a 200,000-hour MTBF at one-third the cost and no redundancy. That's the expectation in the trucking industry compared to the Air Force uh, developing an aircraft. And so we we have really high expectations uh, as to what we're doing, and uh, we don't inspect our trailers nearly as often as we do our aircraft. Uh, we do have an annual inspection, but it's a minimal inspection. Pretty it's cursory, not going to go yeah. around and it's not going to go around and uh, push and shove on every connector to see if there's uh, corrosion inside it, for instance. So smart trailers can help us find those problems in the future, um, and our industry will drive that it has to work reliably or it won't get used. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty important. Um, one of the things that I'm I'm happy to report, and it's nothing new here, but TMC's digging into this already. Uh, started work on a couple of new task forces last year. Uh, you're leading two of them uh, in S7 and S1. S7 is trailers and bodies, and S1's electrical, for those not too familiar with it. Uh, both of those are going to play heavily into the development of the uh, new trailer technology. Can you tell us a bit about the work you're doing on those task forces and uh, what you hope to come away with after a couple of years of work on it? So I've been involved with the future truck activities of the Technology Maintenance Council of ATA for many years. And a couple of years ago, I recognized that uh, whereas we didn't have many computers on the trailer today, that we're going to have more sensors and more computers on the trailer in 10 to 15 or 30 years. So I wanted to get started early on defining what was going to happen. I also recognized we're going to have uh, electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and felt that we're going to need more information from a trailer uh, for safety than we had today. So it was actually uh, just under two years ago, I started talking at the Truckload Carriers uh, Association meeting. And then in uh, September of 2019, we got approval to form the two task forces. We had our first meetings in person uh, in uh, February of uh, 2020. And then since that time, we've uh, had nine uh, one-hour-long webinars from different suppliers as we have investigated what the technology solutions are out there, what the suppliers are offering. Uh, And what we have now developed is a memorandum of understanding. It's approximately 13 or 14 statements related to who owns the data, uh, how long should a battery last, uh, what do you do for tethered versus untethered trailers, uh, what do you do for standards, uh, what do you do for repair, what do you do for aftermarket installation, are all part of that memorandum of understanding. And I've reached the point now where we had a draft, sent that out, and now have a final copy, and I am soliciting signatories to that agreement. Think of it as trying to get a bunch of countries to uh, sign a trade pact, if you will. In this case, I'm trying to get suppliers, uh, technology providers, and our carriers to sign on. 
And I'm, I'm pleased to report that uh, we're making progress. Uh, as of today, with just a f- uh, about 30 days of looking to get signatures, uh, we have Peterson Manufacturing, um, Philips Industries and Philips Connect Technologies, uh, V-Hub uh, Supplier. Then we also, from the carrier side, I'm pleased to say that we have uh, uh, Jim Cade, who's been at Ryder and Ruan uh, and part of TMC for years, uh, as well as Mark Clark, uh, formerly of uh, FedEx and Ryder, who have signed on to this. So uh, anybody that's interested, I can send them a copy of the MOU, and I can send them a copy of the signature uh, sheet so that they can add their signature to it. Now, we've mentioned S1 and S7, and I want to talk a little further about that. Most of the work today is being done in S7, which is called Trailers and Bodies, and there the focus is on the next-generation trailer electrical electronic architecture, which is largely how do we, what things do, do we have to power up, what signals do we have to send, what information has to go back and forth, and that will then drive S1, the electrical, which is where we have always had the standardization work and recommended practices for the electrical connection between the tractor and the trailer. So that's, that's what we've been doing. That's where we're at. Uh, I'm expecting in the meeting coming up in uh, April is where the current uh, meeting is scheduled that we'll have uh, more signatories to the Memorandum of Understanding. Uh, we will uh, take that and publish that as a, a position paper. Uh, and uh, S1, similarly, will have a little more technical information to go. And then a couple of years from now, we'll actually have uh, a group of people who will come up with a recommended practice for the technical part of the standards. I'm going to rely on others to delve into the technical side of things. I wanted to do the high level, get people going down a path of agreeing on some principles of how the solution has to to be, and then let the uh, technical people take on uh, the rest of the tasks. Have you got your uh, got yourself a new flak jacket? <laughs> Go out and take on this task like what happened to you last time? Flak jackets are so much better than they were 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you expecting a lot of resistance from industry and suppliers in this, or do you think it's going to go fairly smoothly this time? I think it will go more smoothly than last time for sure. Okay. Uh, will there be some resistance? Yes. Uh, standards always are a, a little bit of a challenge to get people to move to. The first movers in an industry uh, are out there experimenting. There aren't standards, and unfortunately, when the standards do come, it means some of the people who are first movers have to change things. But if they've got a good relationship with their customers uh, and they come up with better products and the newer products are uh, capable of doing more things, uh, then it'll happen. Well, one of the other issues or, or initiatives, I guess, that you're involved with is something that you created along with uh, Charlie Wilmot of Wilgo Transportation Consulting. I mentioned him a few minutes ago, but uh, you're calling it eSmart. Uh, yes. Can you tell us what that is and, and what you hope to accomplish with that? So as we've been working on this quote-unquote smart trailer, uh, I had a chance to uh, communicate with Charlie. He attended one of the uh, S7 meetings 
and offered to help, and he has a lot of experience in the trailer industry. So that worked out really well, and we began tossing around, you know, what we were trying to do, and uh, I spent some time uh, figuring out what would smart mean from a, a context. And smart is so trivial, it's used all the time, uh, and in going back and forth with Charlie, uh, we ended up with calling it eSmart, uh, which E, you know, before smart also doesn't sound too terribly uh, unusual, uh, but adding a second T, and uh, we traded back and forth on what would that mean? And we came up with the eSmart stands for enhanced safety maintainability, and readiness through technology. So not only is something smart, but it is genius smart, let's say. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's enhanced smarts, and it's the smarts that we need in our industry. We're concerned with safety. We're interested in maintenance costs and maintainability. And if, if that trailer or that truck... Uh, or whatever piece of equipment isn't ready to be used, then it's of no use to us. The military has some, uh, you know, terms for that because it doesn't help if you have five helicopters and only one can uh, be taken out on a mission right now. So this idea of eSmart really took off in my head, and I started to think in terms of, well, this isn't just for a trailer then. This could be for ELDs. It could be for third-party logistics. It could be for sensors. It could be for data connectors. It could be for tractors. Uh, So we began to expand in our heads what we would call not just something smart, but it is e-smart. It uses technology that's maintainable, always ready, safe, and it's been enhanced to be able to achieve that movement of freight and people safely from point A to point B. Is eSmart something that uh, other people in the industry can get involved in or learn about? Participate uh, they can in? Cert- uh, we'd be happy to uh, talk about how they could help. Right now, our, our first focus is to look at the smart trailers. And we're doing what we're calling an eSmart trailer survey. We're going to be going out to the leasing companies and asking them some information about how they're being pushed by their customers to enhance the smarts on their, through technology on their trailers in order to meet their needs. So are they being asked to put tire pressure maintenance systems on? Are they being asked to put uh, trailer tracking systems on? Are they being asked to have trailer tracking systems that also have uh, door open close sensing. All of those things we're going to be going after just the very small number of top tier leasing companies. From there, we think we can continue to expand then to other types of trailers, whether it be hazardous cargo type uh, trailers, which have different requirements for electronic documentation uh, or safety, or as we've talked earlier today about uh, reefers. And then I could see it going into thinking in terms of uh, the SAE Level 2 safety uh, vehicles, whether it be a truck or a tractor, SAE Level 4, and talking about uh, others, uh, autonomous vehicles, but also to all of the back office software that we use, whether it is 
really capable of doing everything that we need? Is it is it maintainable by other than a doctorate in information technology? Uh, does it provide for safety of the operations in general? And is it always ready or does it go down all the time? So I I see and Charlie see the opportunity to take this eSmart and make it a collaborative uh, effort to make sure that things are working. And, and we've even talked about, uh, you know, you could label something as eSmart the way we label something EPA smart way today. I could see the industry jumping all over that. If there was some assurance that what they were investing in or some technology they were taking on had met a certain level or threshold of quality, for the lack of a better word, maintainability, reliability, uh, that would yes. probably ease the transition, wouldn't it? That's that's where, you know, I, I go in my head right now. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, we're coming to the end of 2020. Uh, you mentioned a couple of years out to get the stuff going at TMC. What sort of timeline or horizon do you think uh, will be at to, to really integrate this technology into our fleet? Is it five years, 10 years? How long is it going to take? So everything that I read and see and hear suggests to me that we will see some SAE Level 2 and some SAE Level 4 vehicles on the road tomorrow and the next day and next week. We will see electric vehicles on the road in 2020. One is the earliest, 2022 and 2023. We'll have a number of different uh, uh, companies around the world uh, offering things. And I think by the time we get to 2025 to 2027, in an SAE level four, we'll have removed the backup driver under the certain circumstances, such as on highway from exit entrance ramp to exit ramp. That's the time frame where you have to have standards in place yeah. and have this assurance of reliability and durability. So if we, so I, what I've set for myself as a goal then was to, to get this memorandum done now, so that'll be available in 2021, have standards written by 2023 so that it's available to be implemented and given the time frames it takes for developing and testing it's available in that 2025 plus time frame wow that's really ambitious <laughs> i wish you luck with that <laughs> thank you <laughs> and uh, paul thanks for uh, having this conversation today i you know, my mind was open when i was working on that smart trailer story i think we take those things pretty much for granted but when you start digging into everything that's possible uh it becomes it's exciting you know seeing all this stuff that uh, we will be able to do sooner or later. And uh, God bless you for putting your heart and soul into this to try and make it work. It's going to be a heck of a challenge. I hope it, I hope it to be my legacy. Great. Well, thanks again, Paul. I sure appreciate you joining us on HDT Talks Trucking. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, uh, Heavy Duty Trucking. HDT Talks Trucking is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. HDTX 2021 takes place in Scottsdale, Arizona, Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to view the agenda, to check for dates, and to apply to be our guest at HDTX 2021. If you're new to the podcast, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you like the podcast, please spread the word on social media and check out some of our previous episodes while you're here. 
If there's something you'd like us to cover, please drop me a line at jpark at truckinginfo.com. We'll see what we can do about getting a show on the air for you. HDT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbitt Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.